Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We are talking about the Beatitudes. If you have not been with us, we're defining them as family rhythms. And why that's important is because we will not teach a message that has a merit-based model of our relationship with God. Meaning, when we talk about actions, when we talk about things you need to do, we have to start with the understanding that we don't do them to earn God. We do them because we're already in God's family. And so what we've done each week is we've shared with you guys a rhythm or a value that different families on our staff has because what family values do, what rhythms do, is they reflect the kind of family you're trying to become. They say, this is what we're all about. And that's what the Beatitudes are for the family of God. And so this week, I want to tell you about Doug Harbord. If you don't know Doug, he plays drums a couple weeks a year. He literally keeps this building together with his bare hands. Ian Cook tried to break it, and he came in to save it, everybody. Um, Doug does an amazing job here, no kidding. He's got one of the most difficult jobs in the building. And he talked to me about his family's rhythms. And he said, you know, we really don't have a ton around Christmas or New Year's or the holidays. He said, what we do really, really, really well is birthdays. And he said that there are now six grandkids and four kids and three in-laws and two parents. And so they have birthdays often. And when they do, the entire family gets together, all of them. They share a meal together. One of his daughters is a professional baker. It makes amazing cakes. They eat cake together. And then they gather around. They sit around the person whose birthday it is. They put him in the middle. And they just shower them with gifts and with encouragement and with compliments. And they tell them how loved they are. And they do it because they're part of the family, you know? And I heard that, guys. And look, I'm a twin, and I'm also born on Christmas. I share my birthday with Jesus and my brother. I'm going to his house this year on Christmas, right? I would love that kind of attention. But I think it's really beautiful. I don't think people show up to their birthday celebrations because they want to be a part of the family. They get to because they already are. And that's what we find in the Beatitudes. And today, we're in verse 8 of chapter 5. It's blessed our the pure in heart. And what we're going to talk about today, it's a really great phrase coined by a theologian about 1900s, 1903. It's the tyranny of the divided self. And what I loved about that phrase was, I think it, it speaks into a space that's growing, a problem area that's growing with my life and in yours, the tyranny of the divided self. What that means is we have too many things happening at the same time and it divides our attention all over the place. It's not multitasking, it's different. It's the idea that we have so much stimulus from all over that we can't focus singularly on one thing. It's why I get up in the morning and my TV's on mute and I got a radio station playing my Alexa and I'm trying to get ready and make breakfast and burp my kid and all these things are happening because I have all these things vying for my attention. It's why I loved Doug's story for this week because they stop everything, they put phones away, they forget what's going on in their lives, they put somebody in the middle and they say, you're going to get all of my attention right here and right now. It fights this incessant, growing dividedness that our attention gets in our culture. Actually, it's been growing for a long time. In 1998, 
There's a writer and she coined a phrase called continuous partial attention syndrome, CPA, and it's that idea that our attention is more divided. And in 2014, the University of Virginia published a study. This is fantastic. They put a couple hundred people in an empty, quiet room alone for 15 minutes, okay? No stimulus. They said at the end of that, most participants found it, quote, insufferable. 25% of women, and I don't know what's wrong with men, but 67% of men opted to endure painful electric shocks rather than pass the time without any stimulation. We have a divided distraction problem, you know? Just sitting there alone in a room without a screen to look at or seven screens to look at, it's hard to focus. I know it now. We've started to, this came true to me the other day. I read an article on distracted parenting. And I read it and I was like, great. You know, I skimmed it like I do with everything because I'm reading four articles at the same time. One on my phone, one on the computer. I'm listening to a podcast, you know. And uh, my kid gets a bottle every night and I give it to her. And so I'm holding my kid. I'm giving her the bottle. And behind my kid's head is my phone where I'm watching sports, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm crushing this father thing. You know what I'm talking about? And at one point, I, you know, because I'm trying to let my daughter think that I'm just, I'm looking at her. I'm not. And, and I look down at my daughter and she is just staring like into my soul, you know? And that like hit me in the feels. I thought, what am I missing because I'm not focused? The tyranny of the divided self. So Matthew 5, 8 is blessed is the pure in heart. And, and why this makes sense is because what we're going to talk about today is focus. A couple things, but it comes down to at the end, what are we focused on? And what does it do to and for us? We're going to start today like we start every Sunday. It's really difficult right now for the next 30 or 40 or 45 or 50. The Cowboys don't play till tomorrow. I got tons of time. Minutes. Um, to think about other things or to check your fantasy football team, which is what I would be doing, or to read emails or articles. And we come here every Sunday for two reasons. We want to know God more, meaning we want to walk out of this place with a better, fuller, deeper, bigger understanding of God's character that is good. And we want to experience God because God is present and God is near and he's real. And we say that Knowing God without experiencing God is cold and experiencing God without knowing God is shallow. So those two things happen and it is a two-way street. That means there's participation on your end. That we just don't sit and listen for 45 minutes, but we pray and trust that God is moving and doing something as we come together and open his scripture. And so we're going to start this morning like we do. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask that you guys pray to yourself for a bit, for a couple seconds here and there, and just ask that you are attuned to what God is doing in your life, that we participate in the growth that is happening today because the Spirit is present. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for this space and these people and our ability to open your scriptures. I pray that you are loud in our spirit today. If you're comfortable right now, I just ask that you take a couple seconds and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you today that you might see God in new and different ways. I'd also ask that you pray for me, that God might use this time and use my words as something that is good and edifying and encouraging and that reflects his goodness. 
And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, so blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, today, we're going to do with a lot of our time is defined terms. Because this was written to a first century world that had different ideas of what blessed, pure heart was than we do today. And so we're going to walk down this list. And as we redefine terms, some of you are thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to be a blast, I promise. As we redefine terms, hopefully it paints a picture of what this looks like in our lives today. And so the first one is what we've seen each and every week. It's blessed are. So blessed is our first word. And we're not going to spend too much time here because we've done it every week for the last six. But essentially, blessed, we define it as a fulfillment in aligning our practices with God's principles. What that means is the Beatitudes are God's family values. And as you live them out more, you are more and more fulfilled. You are more and more blessed. What it means is that as we live into God's rhythms in ways like people do when they have rhythms for birthdays, we see the joy that comes with knowing that we're in the family of God. It means that happy, sad, mad, glad, our fulfillment from living into God's values aren't dependent on our circumstances, but our ability to press in more and more. It's a sustainable pursuit that increases our joy the more we pursue it. It's a beautiful idea when Jesus said, blessed are. It's more than happy, and it's more than just stuff. It is fulfillment as we realize that we're living into God's values, because that's what we were made for. So he says, blessed are, and it's been each and every week. And today he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Let's talk about that idea of heart. So when we hear heart, there's always usually, there's, there's an emotional attachment that comes to us when we say the word heart, right? It's this, it's this idea that we have heart strings that can be pulled. It's usually when we say love, we love with our hearts. It's this passion and this emotion and this idea of concept of love all tied up together. It's why when I, my daughter was born two months ago, people said your heart will melt, right? Those kinds of things. When we hear the word heart, we think emotional, passionate, usually loving attachment towards or for things. But here's the deal. That is not what was meant in the first century. Words evolve with time, spaces, places, and people. And so as we have a more clear understanding of our world, the language we use to describe it shifts. Read astronomers from three and four and five hundred years ago. Read scientists talk about how the earth is being revolved around by the sun. Read what it looks like before they found what gravity was. Our language changes as we learn more, and that's a beautiful thing. So in the first century world, they had this idea of heart, but it was bigger than what ours is now because they didn't have some words for some things because they didn't know. There's a joke I read this week I liked. kind of encapsulates this point. It says, a story is told about a little boy who was asked by his teacher, where is your heart? He responded, my heart is where I sit down. The teacher was surprised and asked, how did you get this idea? The little boy responded with, every time I do something good, my grandma pats me there and says, bless your little heart, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's also a clean joke. It's a win-win, everybody, right? But that's the idea, is this kid had a limited knowledge of his body, a limited knowledge of what heart was, and so he attributed these things to heart because that's the lens, a bucket that he had in terms of description. In the first century world, they didn't know what a brain was yet. They didn't know what nerve endings were. They didn't know about adrenaline. They didn't know about a lot of things we know about. So when Jesus said, blessed are those who are pure in heart, he meant different things, and it's important for us to understand what he meant. 
We're going to go to a couple examples. Um, in 1 Kings 3, this is the story of Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man to ever live. And God came to Solomon, son of David, and said, I'm going to be your genie right now. Whatever you want, whatever you want in this world, I'm going to give you. Whatever you want. Pick one thing. God didn't limit it to good things. God didn't limit it to certain kinds of things. God just said, tell me what you want. He could have picked money, and he could have picked houses, and he could have picked women, and he could have picked food. He could have picked anything he wanted. And this is what he said in 1 Kings. He says, God says back to Solomon, I will do what you have asked. Solomon asked for wisdom. He said, I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will have never been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. So Solomon said to God, you know what I want? I want to be smarter than everybody else. I want to be wiser than everybody else. I want to be able to discern good from bad more than anybody else. That's my desire. So he said, I want intellect. And God said, I'm going to give you a wise and discerning what? Not brain, not head, not IQ. They didn't know what that was. He said, I'm going to give you a wise and discerning heart. What we see in the Old Testament, it happens a few different times. You can go to Proverbs 2, 10 if you want to. We see that your heart drives what you know. It's more than just emotion. It absolutely is intellect and wisdom. When we see heart in the New Testament, when we see heart in an Old Testament context, it is talking about the thing between your ears. It's what you know about what you know. So heart is intellect, but it's more than that. If you go to 2 Samuel, this is Solomon's dad. Solomon's dad at this point um, had pretty much conquered the world that he wanted to conquer and he gets back to his house, which is pretty nice. And he looks over at the tabernacle, that's God's tent at that point, and he says to Nathan the prophet, I have a great house, God lives in a tent, something's wrong here. And so he says to Nathan, I want to build God a house. And Nathan says this, in 2 Samuel 7, 3, Nathan said to him, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So it's this idea that heart is more than just intellect. It's also those things that you desire more than anything else. Heart is more than just what I know. Heart is also kind of what determines our desires and drives what we do. It's that pull towards that thing that we want more than all the other things. So our heart is what we know, our heart drives what we do from our desires, and then finally, the one that we know really well, heart is encapsulated by emotions. Uh, we see it a few different places. In Psalm 69, it says, Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. There's a story in the Old Testament of a woman named Hannah who couldn't have a kid. She really, really wanted a kid. And she says, my heart is broken. Actually, the phrase brokenhearted is a phrase that starts with um, a Hebrew phrase. There's also not just sadness, but there's gladness. Jeremiah 15, 6, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. So heart is not just limited to what we know. It's not just limited to what we do or what drives us to do what we do. It's also what we feel. It's the closest one to what we have right now. And why that's important is because if we're going to start a conversation on blessed are those who are pure in heart, we have to understand what Jesus meant when he said that. Because he's not just saying, blessed are you who have great emotions. 
Or blessed are you who think really well. Or blessed are you who have purity in what your desire is and what drives you. He says, blessed are you who are pure in heart. And what we know from the Old Testament is that the heart was the driving force for all of our life. Everything, every space, every time we did anything, the heart was the driving force for it. It was their bucket that encapsulated all that they knew and all that they did. And why there's tension there that we're going to talk about is because they had a very divided faith. We can probably point to examples in our life when they acted one way some places and another way another place because they tried to make God happy and look good. What Jesus is saying in that culture is, is I'm after my family. The values that we share is all of you. Everything that you can't define that you put in that bucket that we do called heart, that's what I want to be pure, which is radical then. So he says, blessed are you who are pure in heart. Let's talk about purity. This idea of purity kind of has two different ways of applying it for us. When you read the Beatitudes, there's a bunch of dual meanings in there. And those are good things. It's not a bad thing. It's not like we couldn't make our mind up, right? Um, When we read the Beatitudes, we see kind of this initial idea, this initial interpretation that, that makes you available to the family of God and then one that's ongoing, right? So for example, blessed are the first week, the poor in spirit. Okay, it takes poverty of spirit to acknowledge your need in the first place for they will be called sons or children of God. If you never acknowledge you need God, you will never turn to Jesus in the first place. That is the moment that we trust that God is near and says, I'm saving you. But it's also a reality we live in every day. And with each beatitude, blessed are the meek and blessed are the merciful and blessed are those who mourn their sin. They understand the gravity of their sin which brought them to poor in spirit in the first place. But also, as you grow up in the Christian faith, we do not lose sight of the gravity of our sin. Rather, we keep that in front of us because it reminds us that God is good and what he's doing. It's this, it's this kind of dualistic interpretation that one sense leads us to God in the first place, but the other sense is the reality that we walk in every day. So when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, it's the same way. It is a reality that God has done something that we needed done in the first place. Because in the first century world, when you talked about heart, it wasn't necessarily thought of as a beautiful thing. So, for example, let me throw a couple scriptures at you. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Matthew 15, a couple chapters later, Jesus says to the Pharisees, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not. They were getting mad at Jesus for not washing his hands the right way. And Jesus says, you've missed the point. I'm not dirty because I didn't wash my hands. I'm dirty because my heart is broken. It's not pure. And we call this, in theological constructs, the doctrine of original sin. It's this idea, pretty simply, that you are not a sinner because you've sinned. You sin because you are a sinner. It means you had no choice. You were born with it. And And I've heard this taught before several different times. I know it more to be now true, truer than I had before. I know that you're born a sinner because I have a child that's nine weeks old. Okay? I do. And I love my daughter, but she is selfish. Right? 
Her world is about her and it's not about me. And I can give you daily examples of how when we try to go to sleep and she keeps us up, she just looks at us and smiles, right? Last night, for example, I, I get some work done and I had a little more work left to do and I'm trying to watch the end of the OU Tech game and so I give her the bottle while not watching sports and focused on her trying to so hard and then I swaddle her and I read her a story and I put her to bed and I shut the door and I'm like, yes, you know? And I go to my chair and I sit down with my laptop to finish up some slides and turn on the game and as my butt hits the seat, what do I hear? Yelling. She knew. She knew. Right then and there was the moment that I'd been waiting for, and she knew right then and there she was going to ruin it. And she didn't care, right? My point is simply, and you can make all the jokes you want, but you have kids too. Most likely we are born sinners. It's what the Bible teaches about us. And so when we talk about the heart, the Bible paints this picture that the hearts are fundamentally flawed. But the beautiful thing about that is that's the point of the gospel, (laughs) The point of the gospel is that, yeah, he recognizes that our hearts are dark and evil and lead towards bad things. Lord of the Flies was a biopic about all of us. What he's saying is that I came to fix that. You can't do it. And that's why it's important to understand that we can't do it. The Pharisees never did. It's not that we can make ourselves better. It's that we needed a completely new heart. So he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is way back in the Old Testament. Moses says, this is the end goal that you guys don't see, and the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. He will give you a new heart for you and your offspring, so you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul that you may live. Ezekiel 36 puts it like this, pretty popular verse. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What he's saying there, what is so fundamental to the gospel is that you just don't need to be better, you need to be made new. And so when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, as a first century Jewish guy, I'm thinking those two phrases don't make sense together. And then secondarily, if the heart's intrinsically evil, how can I get that done? And Jesus says, that's why I'm here. Blessed are the pure in heart. It is a state, a positional state that we have before the Lord, but like everything else in the Beatitudes, it's also a perpetual value that we live into in the everyday. And if you're anything like me, um, if you're anything like me, you probably feel a good bit of shame we live in that culture. I am a high responsibility guy, and so I feel shame for things that I shouldn't feel shameful of. And so you might be saying, you know what, I just, I don't think that I can do that. I don't feel pure. So it's when we have a conversation about, one, God says you are. You can trust you, you can trust God. But two, it's this perpetual lifestyle that we live into. And this word pure means a couple different things here. It really means a state of cleanliness, but it also means a singularity of focus. So it means that your motives or your desires match your discipline or your action. So when we talk about I don't feel pure, it's really a conversation about aligning our motives, our desires with our actions, our discipline. Pure in heart isn't simply a state of being, it's a singularity of focus. That's why David in Psalm 51, when he made an awful mistake with a woman, slept with her and killed her husband and did some terrible things, that's why he can pray to God and say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me because he knew that his attention for a little while was divided between this woman in between God, it is the tyranny of the divided life. 
He's saying my focus wasn't where it should have been and I need pure motives where my focus and my actions, where my desires and my discipline line up. Because here's the deal. If the heart is all of who we are all the time, if it's the driver of everything you are, then when he says you need to have purity and the driver of everything you are, what he's saying is that all of you lines up. What he's saying is that it's clean between what you do, who you are, and, what you, and, and your desires. He's saying that's what purity is. It's a singularity of focus. So wherever I catch you, whether it's in your room or whether it's in church or whether it's with your wife or kids or friends, you look the same. Blessed are the pure in heart. And that's a really tough thing to do. It's a really tough thing to do because we have all these things vying for our attention. It's a tough thing to do and it isn't just our problem, it's been their problem. So the Pharisees, summarize some text here for you. The Pharisees had this problem um, for a long, long time. The Pharisees, if you know the story at all, they did things with improper motives, but the things they did were good and right. So in the next chapter or two, Jesus picks on three of those. He says, let me, let me talk to you about some actions. He says, praying, fasting, and giving. He says, you've seen the Pharisees do all these things. And so he says, so you've seen how they pray and how the Pharisees used to pray is they would go to the popular street corners and put their arms in the air and call out to God so that everybody would see him, every single person. And they'd say, oh God, help me in my country. And he'd say, hey man, you want to get out of the way? He's like, I'm praying right now, you are not, please let me pray, you know? And then when it came to fasting, they would fast, but they wouldn't fast in a way that was just between them and God to do work with them and God. They would fast in a way that let everybody else knew that they were fasting. They would literally make themselves look more emaciated than they would be just so people would say, hey, are you okay? And they'd be like, I am okay, I'm really okay, I'm just fasting, I haven't eaten in a while, you know? It's this idea that they would say, oh, are you going to dinner somewhere? And they're like, yeah, do you want to join me? I can't, I'm fasting, but thanks. It's that idea that they would do. And then Jesus says, and also you've seen how they give. They had buckets in the temple where you'd give and you'd walk up to them and you'd put your money in there. And, and instead of putting a dollar bill in, for example, they'd like make it rain with a hundred pennies because it sounded louder. And so they'd say, man, look how much that, did you hear all that? Look how much that guy's giving, right? And so Jesus says to them, he says, you've missed the point. Your focus is in two different places. You want to do the right thing, but please the wrong people. You're after two different things. And he says to them, they've had their reward. Uh, The commentator that talked about the tyranny of self said, the single-minded are those who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. It's a beautiful idea of what pure in heart is. So Jesus speaks to these Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You're clean on the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, clean the, outside, or clean the inside first, and then the outside will be clean. He says in verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and they're full of bones of the dead, and everything is unclean. He says, but in the same way, on the outside, you appear as people of righteousness, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. From the very beginning, biblical purity has always been an inside-out process, not an outside-in pattern. 
that's what Jesus is calling people into. He's saying, I want all of you to line up. Now, small little caveat. What he means, let me, let me talk about how I experienced Halloween this year. This was my family's first Halloween in my house. So like people stopped by. So we were excited. My daughter was dressed up as a snow leopard. That's right adorable. Um, and, and we had bags of candy. We needed seven pieces, but we had bags of candy because we had no idea how many kids were going to stop by and we didn't want to be that house, you know? So it's sitting in my living room asking me to eat and I hate it, right? And so as the kids would stop by, we had a dozen or two dozen kids or something like that. They'd knock on the door and I don't understand why. Maybe it's a cultural thing, but kids, maybe, maybe I'm just scary, but kids are timid now. Like when I was, when I was, trick-or-treating, I would take handfuls of things, you know? If you left, if you were the lazy people, I'm sorry, that left the bucket out, that just said, please take one, I said, no, thank you, dumped it in my bag and walked away, all right? That's just my personality. These kids would come up to my door and I'd say, you know, hey, how you doing? What are you? You look so cute. The parents would be standing a couple feet away and I'd bend down with this bucket and I'd say, grab handfuls, kids, please. I have all of this, you know? And either you're going to get fat or I am. I choose you. And so, Literally, these kids, it was funny, one by one, they would, they would take like a piece of candy or two pieces of candy, and it never happened beforehand. It was always after. The parents would say, what, what do you say? And the kids would say, thank you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, what do you say? Thank you. Look at him, please. Thank you. And they would do it, right? It's this crazy process. And, and why I bring that up is because that's kind of what the Pharisees were doing. Their motives, they just wanted candy. Literally, if the parents told them to look me in the face and say, you look a little overweight, dude, they would have done that just to get the candy, you know? It didn't matter. The ends justified the means. They were going to say whatever they had to to get what they wanted. The Pharisees were going to do whatever they had to to get the praise of people. Their motives didn't line up with their actions, desires, and disciplines missed. My point is simply, even if that happens and we find our desires and our discipline not lining up, it does not mean stop living in good discipline, right? So, even if your kid doesn't want to, you should make them say thank you. It is better for them. Notice how Jesus treated the Pharisees. He didn't say after they gave, after they fasted, after they prayed, stop praying, you're missing the point. He simply said that they don't get the full benefit of it because they don't get the depth that comes from desires aligning with discipline. God says, I value a cheerful giver, but if you're not cheerful, you can still give to God. I'll take your money, right? It's this idea that God says discipline is good and sometimes good discipline changes our desires. But when those two things don't line up, God says, I want it all. But discipline is good. And so he's saying to the people here, God wants all of your heart. He wants all of it. And let me tell you why he wants it. Because if we don't give it to him, it is exhausting to live in two different spaces. It's exhausting to divide our attention. It's exhausting when our desires and our discipline don't light up and we don't have a singularity of focus. There was... A, I don't know if you guys knew this, uh, but you can be Instagram famous now and make lots and lots of money. That's my next gig. I think I have seven followers. Um, <laughs> the last thing I posted was the ice bucket challenge. So I'm well on my way. Um, There's a, a model I found this week and, and she was famous because I think last summer, this summer, she has 580,000 followers and she basically came out and posted at the bottom of her pictures, I'm tired of this, I'm sick of this. It took me 100 pictures in 30 minutes to get this one shot that made my stomach look flat, right? She actually said in 
I'm going to quote her. She said um, that I was miserable, I was stuck, I was uninspired, and I was angry. I'd spend 50 hours per week just curating my social media persona because her desires didn't line up with her discipline. That started a movement this summer. Somebody else posted on Instagram and said, hey, let's do this. Let's, let's repost an image that we really liked that made us look really happy and then post what was actually going on in your life when that happened. You know, we have a couple examples I thought were really good. This woman says, my, my friend's wedding. Both the smiles are fake because we've been fighting. I still cringe seeing my body language in the photo. I remember feeling guilty that our other friends would know and that we'd be a distraction from a happy and important event. There was another woman that posted this that looked like she had a great time at the Grand Canyon. She said, I took a solo trip during one of the more major depressive episodes of my adult life. It was a relatively good trip during which I spent a lot of my time crying alone in my car and motel room. And then there's this mom. She's a doctor and she said, this is a fabulous prompt. The one saying, why don't you share what's actually going on? Because <laughs> it's so easy to lie to people. It says, this photo is of me and my daughter, now almost nine, as a baby. I hadn't slept in months and I had a raging postpartum anxiety. I loved her, but mostly wanted to run away. I was tired and angry, the tyranny of the divided life. God says, Blessed are the pure in heart. And he does that because he knows that we were created to focus on one thing. He does that because he knows that living in two different worlds and two different spaces is exhausting. That's why Jesus comes in Matthew and says, my yoke is easy and the burden I give you is light. I require you to focus on one thing. And that doesn't mean that you don't have any other passions. I'm not saying that we spend all day praying and fasting and in Bible study. God gives you passions and they are good. What this means is that you have one focus that impacts and shapes all the other passions in your life. Whether you're a father or whether you play music or whether you preach on Sunday mornings or whether you're a CPA, it means that your single focus in all those things is filtered through the lens of the gospel. It means that he's saying focus on Jesus in all those areas. There's a movie I saw this week. It's a good example of it. It's called Free Solo. I don't know if you've heard of it. I was in my teaching meeting, and one of the people said, is that the new Star Wars film? <laughs> and I said, no. It's about climbing. And um, if you didn't know what this is, there's different ways to climb. So there's top rope climbing, which I'm sure I'm going to get these terms wrong, but it's kind of when you dangle and the rope helps you out a little bit, you know, when you're going up the little wall and you get some assistance. It's what I do because I'm terrible at climbing. There's, there's soloing, which essentially means that you get no help from the rope whatsoever. So you climb, and as you climb, it is only you doing all the work. It's not helping you press against the rock or the face, or it's not helping you lift up off the rock or the face. But if and when you fall, there's a rope to catch you. So if you've seen this before, it's when people usually fall about 10 or 15 feet, and they start dangling, you know? That's soloing. Then there's this asinine pursuit called free soloing. Free soloing is when you have no ropes, no nets, no nothing. It's just you. There's a guy named Alex Honnold. This movie's incredible, guys. His, his name's Alex Honnold, and he's the best free soloer in the world. And they made a documentary about a climb he did last spring. And he, there's this one solid, straight-up piece of granite called El Capitan in Yosemite. It's three thousand vertical feet. And when you watch this thing, there are points in this thing when he's 2,000 feet in the air and he's holding onto this rock by like half a pinky toe and a fingertip, you know? And if he falls, there's nothing beneath him. He's free soloing. My point with that is this is this man's life. He, he literally lives in a van, not down by the river. He lives in 
You guys got me. He lives in a van and travels from space to face. And he's done it for six years because he can go wherever he needs to, where the climbing's the best, and just camp out at the base of the hill and wake up every morning, walk to the thing, and start climbing. He, it changes how he eats, and one of the tensions in the documentary is he kind of starts dating this girl, but kind of doesn't. And the tension is, if I start dating this girl, my climbing's going to suffer. And he literally says at one point, if I ever have to choose between this person I'm kind of dating and climbing, it's not a choice. Climbing wins every time, you know? And, and the point there is simply that that was his whole focus, and it shaped all of his passions, whether it be how he ate or how he lived or how he dated. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, what he means is, blessed are those whose singular focus that shapes all their other passions is focused on God. It's this beautiful kind of description of somebody that's free from the tyranny of the divided life. And my favorite part about this whole thing is how it ends. He said, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. I think of all the Beatitudes, this is my favorite promise that we get after the action. For they will see God. And like the Beatitudes themselves, it's talking about the family of God, the kingdom of God, the influence of God in our world. And we live in a place where we see God's influence now, but it's not fully taken hold of yet that's going to happen when Jesus comes back. So when he says, blessed are, and here's an action that results because of it, we live in this dual fulfillment of we see parts of it now, and then one day it will be fully actualized when Jesus comes back. So when he says they will see God, he's literally pointing to a day when you and I stand in the presence of God and we see God and we say, this is my creator who I was made for. This is fulfillment. Job says it really well in chapter 19. He says, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end I will stand on earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And that is a beautiful hope that I look forward to one day as well. But it's not just that. There's this dual fulfillment of it will one day be, but it's coming true right here and right now as the influence of God grows, as we live into the values of God every day. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. 1 Corinthians 13 puts it like this. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then one day we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. It's this idea that as our focus hones in more and more on God, we see more of God working in the world around us. That's a great principle. Because I don't know about you, but often I get the question that pops into my head, where is God? I am looking at getting a different car because I still drive a coupe and I have a kid. And it's really difficult to get the kid in and out of the coupe. And sometimes people stare now like I'm pulling a rabbit out of a hat when I like pull up to a shopping center and I pull this, you know, car seat out like, man, they look at me like, oh my gosh, you know, and I'm sick of people staring. And so I'm looking at new cars use cars in different models. And it's crazy how I'll look at a model of a car and be like, I haven't seen that one before. And I'll hone in. And then as I'm driving in the next few weeks, I will see that car everywhere. And I'll think, oh, everybody drives this car. How have I missed it? Because I was focused on other things. Now that I focus on the car that I want, I see the car everywhere. God says, blessed are you who singularly focus on me. When you do that, 
you will see me working in your world where you've missed it before. It's this crazy idea that Pure in Heart reminds us that where we focus on or what we focus on is what eventually we see. That's beautiful. It's beautiful to know that as I line up my focus into the things of God, that I see God more working in my world. It's, it's when I drive with friends to the mountains every year and I can look at the mountains and for me, I don't just see mountains. I see God's creative influence and design all over the landscape of his creation. It's a good meal I share with friends that would just be a steak, but now because God is good, I see God weaving our life stories together to give me more joy than he did before. It's the beauty that God's at work in my world and I miss it because I'm focused on other things, the tyranny of the divided self. I have a, a note that I carry on in my Bible. Um, buddy of mine, one of my few friends from the Moody Bible Institute, he, uh, we met the first couple days, and I'll go into details later if you want to know it, but we feel like really God brought us together. It's crazy. And we're very different people, you know. I was at Moody, and I was trying to follow the rules. I'm very bad at those things, and he led the prayer team at Moody. You know, lots of times people asked us, how are you guys still friends? And um, maybe we just had this bond that we felt like God drew us together. And it was, he's a good Christian kid, so he got married at 21. Moody was very proud of him, and he asked me to be in his wedding. And I said, sure, I'd never been in a wedding before. I've been in several since then. And we had no money because we were at Moody in college and I was eating ramen for 17 meals a day. And, and he, he said, hey, just fly to Atlanta and rent a car and drive to South Carolina and rent a tux that's three sizes too big. And I said, sure. And, and there's a point in the wedding in which, you know, they're supposed to give you something because you spent all this money on them just to be there and stand next to them and make them look good. And it was funny, he didn't have any money either. And so he wrote me this note, again, that I carry with me every day. He says, thank you so much. This is August 6, 2005. Thank you so much for your commitment to me and in our marriage. I'm very thankful for your friendship and your brotherhood. God has given you amazing gifts, and I'm excited to see how he will use you in the days to come. The Lord has encouraged me as I've seen you grow these past couple of years. Thanks for your encouragement and loyal friendship. Thank you for standing with me. I will stand with you and fight for you, alongside you through this life. Love in Christ, Mike. My point is simply, that could have just been a wedding but because we as a friendship were focused on Jesus, it was so much more. And I look at that and I say, God is good. I wonder if the answer to the question, where is God, is all around, but we don't notice him because we're so divided in our attention. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will so beautifully see God. That is amazing. And what we come down to at the very end, I think this beatitude leans us, steers us towards, is as we keep our focus on God and fight the tyranny of the divided self, we will see God at work in our world. That's it, man. It's this beautiful truth that I need to hear because I need to remember where my focus is. And as I focus more on Jesus, I begin to see his influence go out from here in my life. And then it perpetuates on itself because then I see God working in my world. And I say, guys, how cool is this? I just want to focus on this more. And the more I focus on God, the more I see God at work, and the more I am blessed. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God May we focus on God and see him work. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for the truth of your scripture. I'm thankful just that you are a God that can be known and can be seen. I'm thankful 
that you call us to focus on you all the time. It's our best good, I'm thankful, that you've promised that as we focus on you, we will see you more in our world. I need that. I need that in a world that pulls me 17 different ways and I'm happy to go those different directions. God, I pray today is just encouraging for us as we leave this space. It's an encouragement for us to focus back on God if we've let our focus go other places. It's an encouragement that as we focus on God, we will see God. It's a promise that you're here and you're working. And as we live into and live out your family values, we begin to see your influence grow and spread. It's encouraging to know that at the end of the day and at the end of all the things that pull at our attention, that you remind us what's really valuable and you remind us that you work to bring about your good and that leads us to worship. So might we see you working in our world as we focus on Jesus and might we be reminded how good you are. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.